Welcome to the Church in the Graveyard podcast. The book of Romans is truly one of the high peaks of the Bible. It is an intimidating mountain to climb, but the view from the top is well worth it. In the first four chapters, we hear that all have sinned, but the Apostle Paul takes us to the heart of why Jesus is such good news. We discover that his gospel changes everything about how we see the world. It means peace, it promises holiness, it beckons us to freedom, and it calls for love. For more information and audio content, please visit us at neac.com.au. Ben, I'll be bringing us the first Bible reading tonight. It's on page 200 of the Pew Bibles, and it's Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 10. Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and curses I've set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God, And obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Hi, my name's Elizabeth and the second Bible reading is from Romans chapter 2, verse 17, which is on page 1113 of the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, 
Will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some, of, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every man a liar as it is written, so that you you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say, that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. Well, good evening <clears throat> again, everybody. Um, there is a sermon outline in uh, what you got on the way in, which you may like to look at, though. If you don't want to, that's fine, because I made a mistake with the italics, and it's a bit distressing to me. Because uh, I'm that kind of person. But there you go. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us and speak to us this evening. Lift us above the human ways of thinking we so easily become entangled in. And let us know the truth of Jesus Christ that sets us free. Amen. Uh, During the week, my wife Lauren and I started working out what we would get our family members for Christmas. (sighs) It is September. This is very depressing. Uh, We're starting early mainly because we're expecting a baby and we're kind of freaking out about all the things we have to do. And this seems like something we can tick off. It it is a bit like polishing the deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, It's also because my wife Lauren, although she would not admit it, and I can say it safely in her absence, but it is becoming very scary in the level of her organisation these days. Um, now, I love giving people presents. Uh, I really do, and my brother is here, so this is true. I love giving you presents, David. Um, and yet every year it occurs to me, as I'm sure it probably does to you, that there is something a bit off about expecting presents to be given and received. I think back to my childhood uh, and how we used to uh, put in requests for what we would like. Did anybody else do this? Please let it not be just me. On a couple of truly horrific occasions, I remember asking, I remember uh, saying to my parents, uh, asking them how much we had to spend. Oh, and then kind of tallying up, you know, my budget for the Christmas presents. Now, of course, it's all really awful, actually, uh, but my parents didn't quite play this game. Uh, but they would normally respond by giving us more. Uh, and it was very generous, gracious, but probably not good for our character. But there you go. 
Now, that's an extreme example, and, and yet I'm sure many of you know the sense uh, that you're expected to give a gift to various people, and you probably expect them in return. And so the world is full of moleskin notebooks and crap from Pentimento. But there you go. Hey, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big subscriber, but there you go. Now, what's wrong with this, of course, is that the sense of expectation can undermine the whole character of a gift as a gift. That is, as something that is graciously given, which we are in no sense entitled to. If a gift is to be a gift, it needs to be remembered that deep down, we have no right to it. Now, I begin with these thoughts because the passage before us today from Romans chapter 2, verse 17, which would be great to have open, page uh, 1113. This passage confronts us, I think, with the question of whether we are sometimes guilty of treating God's gifts in the same way. This passage is a powerful criticism of, of an attitude that subtly treats God's gifts of grace treats God's goodness to us as something we are really kind of entitled to, something we have a right to expect. Uh, before we dive in, though, uh, we should take a moment to get our bearings, because as you may have noticed on, in the reading, it's a bit of a weird passage, and uh, kind of a long way from our world in some ways. <clears throat> it picks up uh, halfway through an argument that if you've been with us, we've been working our way through for a few weeks. doesn't matter if you haven't been with us, you'll still be able to follow it. But the overall thrust of this argument is to show that sin, that is failure to live as God calls us to, is a universal human problem. The section of the argument that especially concerns us begins in chapter 2 verse 1, where Paul turns the spotlight around onto the religious person who could agree with what he'd been saying in chapter 1, Uh, that God's wrath rightly falls on the sinful world at large. He argues that if, if, if you can agree with that, well, that shows that you too stand condemned because you too fail to live up to that standard. Now, as we saw last week, it becomes clear that Paul has in mind, in, in this argument, particularly Jews, uh, that is, his contemporaries. Uh, It's not anti-Semitism. He was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. But his contemporaries who held to Jewish faith and were unwilling to embrace the message about Jesus that he proclaimed. Paul's aim in this part of Romans, that is, is to show why Jews need Jesus too. He, He hasn't got to Jesus yet, but that's where he's going. And he's working to show that Religious Jews are no less in need of the forgiveness and grace and justification that comes through Jesus than the the pagan Gentile world at large. You follow so far? Okay. So it might be worth clarifying then at this point how all this is relevant to us today. Uh, After all, I suspect that not many of us here are religious Jews. Uh, In fact, many of us come to this passage as people who are already Christians. In a sense, we don't need to be convinced that we need Jesus. He's our whole reason for being here. Um, 
others of us, there are probably people here who are not Christians, uh, yet I think it's unlikely that you resemble the people Paul has in mind. Okay, so how can this part of Paul's argument help us then? Well, it can help us by showing us more clearly why we need Jesus. And so keeping us away from dangerous mistakes, mistakes that, as we'll see, Christians are more than capable of making. By observing Paul's argument about why the Jews need Jesus, we discover some deep truths about ourselves, which we maybe hadn't realised before. And we see more clearly why we need Jesus and, and what it actually means to receive salvation by his grace. Okay, so let's turn into this passage. Uh, that's kind of why we're reading it. Uh, and we see, I think, three things in, in this part of Paul's argument. They're on your outline. Uh, three things that all revolve around the idea that we have no right to God's goodness. First, in verses 17 to 24, we see that we have no right to expect grace on the basis of our intellectual commitment to God's word. Second, in verses 25 to 29, we see that we have no right to expect God's grace on the basis of our membership of God's people. And third, we'll see in chapter 2, most confrontingly, I think, that we have no entitlement to God's grace even on the basis of God's gracious character. Now, these will again, like last couple of weeks, be hard messages to listen to, but they are good for us, I think. Because when we realise, you see, that we have no right to God's grace, then we will really know what it means that it is grace. And then the way will open to receiving it. Okay, first then, have a look at verse 17. Paul begins by criticising an attitude which subtly puts confidence in the fact of one's knowledge or commitment to the word of God. Follow with me from verse 17. Now you, he says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about, actually the word for brag is, is not quite as strong and negative of that, it just means boast in or put your confidence in. If you boast in your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul's basically describing here someone who is deeply invested in the truth of God's word, somebody who knows their Bible and believes it and thinks it's the key to understanding right and wrong and so sees themselves as having something to offer others because of it. And we can see, I think, how this might be relevant to Christians today. But having defined who he's talking to, Paul opens up both barrels. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, that just means hate, idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
Now, here we see actually some of the substance of the accusation Paul made last week in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 2, that those who judge, in fact, are doing the same things as those they're judging. And his aim is to utterly demolish any sense of confidence that comes simply from knowing what God says. Who cares if you know it and teach it? says Paul. Do you do it? And if not, who are you kidding? Do you really think that your commitment to the truth of the Bible is going to be any defense whatsoever on the day of judgment when the fact is that you're guilty of doing the same things? Paul's aim is to pull the rug out from under the illusion that mere possession of God's law, our knowledge of the truth, will mean that somebody is okay with God and safe from his judgment. And this, it seems to me, is something we very much need to hear because it is so easy for knowledge and understanding to make you feel confident. You know, you, you read the Bible and you work to understand it, especially if you engage in any kind of study of it. You acknowledge its truth and the power of the things it says and you start to see the world in its light and from its perspective and it starts to make you feel a, a bit smug and superior. To feel like you are in a better position because you know the truth. Now, in a sense, as we'll see, this is a better position to be in. But in a more important sense, it doesn't make a fig of difference. Because what you know has no impact whatsoever on the problem of sin, of actual failure to do what God calls us to. The problem is, though, it feels like it does, and it deludes you. And you end up in the most ugly hypocrisy. Like the examples Paul mentions here, the person preaching against stealing while profiting from theft. The person saying people shouldn't commit adultery while doing it themselves. And most ridiculous of all, can you imagine this? Preaching about how God hates idols and then on the side, on the weekend, maybe just robbing some temples. You know, these examples seem ridiculous, impossible. And yet we can add ones just as bad from our own day. The preacher who rails against greed while amassing his own wealth. The pastor who preaches against fornication while addicted to pornography and prostitution. And most horrible of all, church workers who speak of holy things while abusing children. Our world is awash with this kind of hypocrisy. And we need to see that it is due in part to the false sense of confidence that can come from knowing and being committed to God's word. It can make people feel secure and superior. But brothers and sisters, we must not be deluded like this. The truth is that simply knowing and being intellectually committed to the word of God is no source of security whatsoever. It gives us no claim on God 
no right to expect him to look after us. Okay, that's the first point. The second is like it. Paul moves on to pull the rug out from a second false source of confidence, a second way in which we can subtly feel we have a claim on God's grace. Membership of the community of God's people. Uh, His focus in these verses from verse 25 is on circumcision. Uh, Now, if you're not familiar with it, circumcision is the practice of cutting off the foreskin of the penis of males. Actually, it's obviously the only kind. Um, And since that was not going to be a joke, that's bad. (laughs) And since the Old Testament, of course, circumcision has been a mark uh, for Jews of belonging to God's covenant people. But as Paul sees, this made it very easy for circumcision to become a source of confidence. Verse 25, have a look at it there. Circumcision, he says, has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Circumcision's great, he's saying, as a marker of belonging, but it's absolutely no use as a means of dealing with sin doesn't do anything to that. And so if you sin, if you break the law, it's a fat lot of good. Now Paul, in verse 26, introduces a, a counterexample to clarify his point. See it there, he says, If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Think about it, says Paul. Imagine if someone who wasn't circumcised actually did everything the law required. Well, then, do you think it would matter that they weren't circumcised? No. Obviously. Paul takes this a step further, though, in verse 27. And he says, The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Now, this is suddenly really provocative because it starts to feel like Paul's talking about something that might actually happen. As we talked about last week, what Paul's doing here is opening up provocative hints of what's to come, of that he's going somewhere really different to what people expected. Um. And he takes this still further in the verses that follow by saying that this this even changes the, the meaning of what it is to be a Jew. Do you see that in verse 28? A man is not a Jew if he's one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Now, Paul's drawing here on imagery from the Old Testament. You may have noticed it in our first reading from Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Imagery of how God would circumcise the hearts of his people. Uh, Similarly, in the book of Ezekiel, God speaks of how I will give you a new heart, he says, and put my spirit in you. It was an image of a renewal that would change Israel from within and make them truly dedicated to God. And Paul's making the point in the sharpest way he possibly can that it is that circumcision that matters, that identity that really matters, so much so that at one level, 
actual physical circumcision is completely irrelevant. Who cares? Now, that's a heavy-duty thing to say. And it raises some major questions, which is exactly where Paul goes in chapter 3, verse 1. But before we look at that, uh, let's just think about how this might challenge us. The major point here is that circumcision gives you no claim on God. No right to assume that you'll be okay. Because circumcision, just like possession of the law, does not actually do anything about the problem of sin. And so if you, if you fail to actually do what God requires, then it's no help to you. Now this ought to challenge us, I think, to think about the ways in which it's possible for us too to put our confidence in the outward signs of being associated with the things of God. And again, I reckon it's really easy for us to do this. To start to feel like, say, just being connected to church guarantees that you're in God's good books and that things will work out for you. This mistake underlies a lot of nominal church membership. That is, the sense that being at least vaguely connected to church, that's, that's got to count for something with God. So maybe you get your kids baptised and then never come back, or maybe you, you come at just Christmas and Easter, or at least just one of them. Underneath this can be a sense that this has got to entitle you to something, that it, it, it makes up in some mysterious way for the failures that you know are present in your life and in your heart. The mistake can be made the other way too, though. Uh, I've known people who are super involved in church and church activities, who attend everything and contribute to everything, and yet also become gradually harder in heart and less open to hearing from God, who seem to become more bitter as time goes on. Underneath that, too, can be the same mistake of thinking that our external connection to the things of God, our membership of his people, somehow entitles us to his generosity. It, it, it gives us a right to his grace. Well then, let's look at the final section of our passage from chapter 3, verse 1. Here Paul drives the knife even deeper into our sense of entitlement by pulling apart some of the objections that might have easily come up to his argument so far. Verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? <clears throat> now you can see the logic of that question, can't you, from what Paul has been saying. And in a way, it's a reasonable question because, of course, it's not, it's not unreasonable to feel like it's a pretty major point of the Old Testament that the Jews are special. But Paul will not give any ground away. What advantage is there, he says? Much in every way, verse 2. Heaps. First of all, they, that is the Jews, have been entrusted with the very words of God. They've got the Old Testament. 
Now, this is the beginning of a theme that we're going to keep coming back to in Romans, and it's going to lead up to chapters 9 to 11, which are this big exploration of this question of the ongoing status and privilege and honour of the people of Israel. Paul's going to spend a lot of time on it uh, later, but now his more urgent interest is in showing that what he has been saying so far makes sense, that the Jews, all of that notwithstanding, are at one level no better off at all because they too have the problem of sin to deal with. So in verses 3 to 8, he turns to making a fairly straightforward point. His point is this. God's goodness doesn't mean he's obliged to save people. God's goodness doesn't mean he's obliged to save people. Um, now, these are complex verses. Okay? They're some of the most kind of dense verses in Romans, uh, but I think we can follow the basic argument fairly easily. Uh, let me talk you through the, the logic. Verse 3. What if some did not have faith? That is, what if some of the Jews weren't faithful to their responsibilities to God? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? That is, will the failure of the Jews to keep their covenant obligations, will it mean that God cannot keep his? Verse 4, not at all, no way. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. God will be shown to be faithful to his word, even if that is, his, even if that is in his judgment of the unfaithfulness of his people. Now, at this point, Paul raises a possible sense of indignation that one of his opponents might feel. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God's unjust in bringing wrath on us? Now, Paul says straight away that this is merely a human argument. Right? That means it's bad in his terms. But we need to feel the logic of this argument because it is a logic that I think goes deep into our own culture's sense of anger at God. And the logic is something like this. If the opponent's saying, if God's purpose in choosing the Jewish people, I think the us in verse 5 is still the Jews. If God's purpose in choosing the Jewish people was ultimately to show his righteousness, and we've got to remember that God's righteousness in Romans is not just something about him, it's something he does. It's, his, it's the way he brings righteousness into the world as well. So if God's purpose in choosing the Jews was, was ultimately to bring about something wonderful and good and show his righteousness, then how can it be fair for him to condemn them? And yet Paul sees that if, if that argument were true, actually, then it would mean that God couldn't judge at all. This is where things get really interesting. Verse 6. If that were so... How could God judge the world, he says? That is, if God's righteousness and goodness is actually inconsistent with his wrath, then it is not just the Jews who shouldn't be judged. He can't condemn anyone at all. Now, it seems to me that this is very close to an idea that cuts very, very deep in our world. The idea that God's goodness is incompatible with his judgment. 
This idea comes in a variety of forms, including the always popular claim that the God of the Old Testament, who, it, who it's thought is fierce and nasty, can't be the same God as the God of the New Testament, who it's claimed is nice. It's a misreading of both parts of the scripture, but you know the claim. And the basic idea underneath this is actually the sense that God's goodness must mean he can't do something like judge. It's partly for the same reason, actually, that people feel, including myself sometimes, I'm, I know this feeling, that, that natural disasters disprove God's existence. The deep assumption, you see, is that if God is a good God, and if he's going to be a good God, then he necessarily has to be, in every circumstance, good for us. But Paul names that thought for what it is. It's a human delusion. And he goes on to argue against it. He does it in a funny way in verses 7 to 8 by showing that it actually leads, if you take it seriously, it leads to an ethics of embracing evil. See it there, verse 7, someone might argue, similar to before, if my, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? How can that be just? Well, why not even say, Paul goes on, and then flags that this is actually something he's been accused of. We'll come back to that later in Romans. He says, why not say, let's do evil so that good may result? You see, says Paul, if you say that God is obliged to do good to all of us, to be gracious, that If you say that if God in the end will be shown to be good, then it's not fair for him to condemn anyone. If you say that, then you may as well take it the whole way and just say, let's go for evil so that good comes out of it. Now, that's maybe not the argument you're expecting him to respond to with that, but it is a good argument because it shows you that there is something wrong with our assumption there. Now, this passage requires more attention than we can give it right now, but let's just make sure we pull back and take one thing from this very clearly. We have no right to God's generosity, to God's goodness to us, simply because he is, in fact, a good God. The story goes that the last words of the German poet Heinrich Heine um, were... God will forgive me, it's his job. Has anybody heard that before? Now, I don't know what the truth about Heinrich Heine's heart was and his faith. He may have been a very devout man. But on the surface, that is terrible presumption. God is a righteous and generous and gracious God, yet this absolutely does not give us any right to that goodness and graciousness and generosity. To feel we are entitled to it, to assume it and to kind of hold it against him if he doesn't give it to us. No, friends, we have no right to God's grace just because he is gracious and will finally triumph in his goodness. His righteousness and goodness will win the day. But we have no right to demand 
that we share in it. Because you see, the thing about God's grace is that it is actually grace. It is a gift that we do not deserve and that we are not entitled to. This is something we all need to see very clearly. Those of us who are Christians need to see it. And those of us who are not Christians and are seeking to understand this faith, we need to see it as well. We need to understand that salvation, our not coming under the wrath of God, God sparing us the consequences of our failures in our lives, if they're going to be things we experience, then that can only be on the basis of his sheer generosity to us. It's not something we are entitled to. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you as we finish to just ask yourself, deep down, do you actually feel kind of entitled to God's grace? Do you feel like you have a right to things working out for you, to things going well in your life? To God being good to you? Do you feel like God's judgment is something you ought not to need to think about? Do you feel like God kind of owes you a good outcome? Perhaps because of your commitment to the Bible or to church or simply because that's the God he is. You know, he's a good God. He, he should give us that. Would it, would it be an injustice somehow for God to hold your sins against you? These are hard questions actually to face honestly, I think, but they're important ones because they ensure that we remember that if we are to have any hope, any confidence that things will turn out for us, if we are to have life rather than death, then it can only be on the basis of God's grace. That is, it can't be something that we have a right to an entitlement to, a claim upon. It can be ours only as a free gift and not as something that is owed to us. And remembering that matters. And it matters most of all because the great message of the gospel, the message these early chapters of Romans have been preparing us to hear properly, is that this free gift really is available In Jesus Christ, God has given life and hope and forgiveness and justification and not as something we deserve, but as his grace to us. And we will only be able to receive this gift if we see it for what it is, grace, not something we have a right to. And seeing this, I just want to finish by noticing, is the key, actually, to the alternative way of relating to God that we've glimpsed in this passage. The way of the person who teaches herself before she teaches others. And whose dedication to God is sealed in his heart, not just his body and external commitments. And whose great longing is for the praise of God and not just men. That is the way that is opened up 
by renouncing our sense of entitlement to God's grace and receiving his free gift in Jesus Christ. Because when you see this, when you see this free gift, it just fills your heart with love and makes you new. So brothers and sisters, can I urge you tonight to renounce your sense of entitlement to God's grace so that the way opens to something much, much better, receiving a gift and the life of devotion and love and freedom that flows out of that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us ears for not just the things we want to hear and that feel good, but for the things we need to hear and that will save our life. We know that we have no right to your good treatment, to your salvation, to your forgiveness. And we pray that we would see that clearly so that we see the glory of what you have done for us in Jesus and grasp onto it with both hands and so that it fills our heart and makes us new in the most wonderful ways and frees us from the ugly hypocrisy we see here. We ask that you do this in us, please. For Jesus' sake. Amen.